0: through 13 Acts chapter 2 1 through 13 These are the words of the living God When the day of Pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gathering us together once again to worship and to serve you. Father, as we come to that time now where we are instructed by your word, we pray that you would help us to hear from you, that you would remove all distractions, that you would get uh, me out of the way so that your word might be faithfully preached and that your people might hear it, receive it, and be changed by it. We pray that you would minister to us by the Holy Spirit during this message and reveal to us the things that are necessary for us to know. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the title of our sermon today is The Catalyst, and the way I'm defining that word uh, the catalyst is a person or an event that sparks a great change or movement in the world. Uh, one such event that is uh, a catalyst, uh, a event that sparks great change in the world, is known as the shot that is heard round the world. Does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say the shot heard round the world? It is the thing that led to the establishment of this nation in which we now live. Uh, Prior to the War for Independence, uh, tensions were building between the colonies and between uh, Great Britain. Believe it or not, Britain used to rule over our land, but when they began to rule unjustly, the colonies decided to break off and become independent of Britain. And two of the great leaders in this war were um, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Samuel Adams and John Hancock, names that may be familiar to many of you. Now, the British were on the way over to the colonies to arrest Samuel Adams and John ha- uh, Hancock and to confiscate our guns, believe it or not, it was a gun confiscation that they were coming to do. They were arresting these men who were leaders in the war, uh, who would uh, lead the war for independence. Now, John Hancock and Samuel Adams had hidden in the house of a pastor uh, named Jonas Clark, the pastor of the Church of Lexington. And when the British troops approached, Pastor Clark and seventy of his men, seventy of his men, went out there on the Lexington Green. Uh, and they confronted these British troops as they approached. Uh, eyewitnesses say that the British troops fired first, and, uh, in response, Pastor Clark's men engaged them and in their defense, and as a result, eight of, uh, the congregation died that day, eight of Pastor Clark's men. The shots fired on Lexington Hill that day sparked the, the war for independence that led to the establishment of our great nation. That is what began the war for independence. That was the those were the first shots that were fired. And in our text today, we see the catalyst of another great change in the world. Um, it is the day of Pentecost. Uh, and it is not just a great change, it is the greatest change in the world in all. Of church history, because it is on that day, the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit came to abide with the church in order to help us accomplish the work of global restoration that Jesus Christ has begun in the world. It is the person of the Holy Spirit who Jesus has sent to help us accomplish this work, and therefore, without his help, it is impossible for us to do it. So, three things today, three things that we're going to focus on in our sermon. The first is that the Holy Spirit brings the restoration of Jesus Christ to the world, and therefore, without the Spirit, we cannot worship and serve Him rightly. We cannot worship and serve Him rightly. Number two, the Holy Spirit brings the restoration of Jesus Christ to the world, and therefore, without the Spirit, we cannot understand the message rightly. Without the Spirit, we cannot understand the message rightly. And finally, the Holy Spirit brings the restoration of Jesus Christ to the world, and therefore, without the Spirit, we cannot rightly respond to the things of God. We see that first point. The Holy Spirit brings the restoration of Jesus Christ to the world, and therefore, without the Spirit, we cannot worship and serve him rightly, in verses 1 through 4a. So that is the first part of verse 4. Let's read that again together, get it before us. Acts 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Everything that Jesus has promised is now coming to fruition, Last week, we saw the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, and now we see the next great promise of the kingdom being fulfilled, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. The, the Spirit would come, and he would empower and enable the church to do this work of restoration that God was calling them to do in the world through Jesus Christ. You remember he said that they were to be his what His witnesses to the end of the earth. And how would they go about doing that? Well, they were going to do it by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, the disciples were to be used in this work of global restoration that God is now accomplishing in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And in order for that to happen, the disciples were going to need some supernatural help from heaven. And here in our passage today, we see that they are given just that. We see that on the day of Pentecost, they were together in one place. text says that they were together in one place, and that is most likely a house that was somewhere near the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. You'll remember that Jesus was crucified on Passover. Then for 40 days, he presents himself alive to uh, the disciples by many infallible proofs, and then he ascends back into heaven, which we looked at last week. Ten days later is the Feast of Pentecost, or a harv- it's a harvest festival, really. Uh, so you have all of these people gathered together in Jerusalem for uh, Pentecost, for this harvest festival, which marked the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. And all the Israelites, all the male Israelites, excuse me, men, were required to, Families could come, but the men were required to come up to this festival and bring two loaves of bread with them as an offering. And this is why you have all of these Jews gathered together in one place here in Jerusalem on that day. And interestingly enough, Pentecost is the day that the Lord chose to pour his Holy Spirit out on the church and begin a great harvest of souls. To begin a great harvest of of souls. As a matter of fact, there are 3,000 people converted in one day, the day of Pentecost, at the preaching of the apostles. And this, friends, right here, is the beginning of that global restoration that we have been talking about. This is the beginning of the global restoration that the human race has been looking forward to ever since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, when the Spirit comes, we see that He is represented in the form of wind and fire. He's represented in the form of wind and fire. Now, why is this significant? Well, wind and fire throughout the Bible point to the presence of God. As a matter of fact, the word wind can be used interchangeably with spirit. And we know that God comes in the wind and he comes in the storm throughout, uh, throughout the uh, scriptures. And also we see God in fire. You remember Moses uh, receives this uh, theophany or God reveals himself to him in the burning bush and God is in the fire. And you have the pillar of fire in the Old Testament that leads the Israelites uh, through the desert. And you have the fire that continually burns at the temple, which represents the presence of God. And the Bible itself even says that God is an all-consuming fire. So here we see that God, the Holy Spirit himself, is coming to empower and enable and equip the disciples to do the work that he had called them to do for the task that is ahead. In this instance, the text tells us that the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit for the work that God called them uh, to do. And this word, uh, filled, well, first, the, the Spirit fills them to empower them, enable them, and equip them, as we have said. But the word is also used in connection with salvation, When people are converted to Christ in the book of Acts, they are said to be filled with the Spirit. So the the ministry of the Spirit really is twofold. He, He comes to open men's eyes to see the truth of Jesus Christ, and he comes to empower men to be a witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. So two main functions. He does other things. These are the two main functions that I'm highlighting here. To open men's eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ and to empower them to be witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ. Moreover, here at Pentecost, we see that the Spirit comes to take up residence in the church once and for all. He comes to take up residence in the church once and for all to help us accomplish Christ's mission on earth until the end of the ages. Right In the Great Commission, Jesus says what? go to all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I've taught you. And there's this piece that we often leave off at the end there, right? And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. What does that mean? Well, that's how he's with us, right? He's with us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lo, I will be with you. How am I going to be with you? He's going to be with us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us do that thing, right? To disciple the nations and to teach them to obey all that he has taught us. And friends, this means that in the church today we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the things that are necessary to accomplish this renewal and restoration work of Jesus Christ in the world. We are utterly dependent upon him in order to be able to do it. We cannot do one single thing of eternal significance without the the help of the Holy Spirit. And that is why we pray in our services for God to illumine the text of Scripture before we read it. That is, so that God can open our spiritual eyes and ears to the text of Scripture so that we can understand the spiritual implications that are there. Because if he doesn't, we never will. I remember whenever early on, I first uh, the, the Spirit started to work in my life, whenever somebody read the Scripture to me and explained it, all of a sudden it made all the sense in the world. And the dots were beginning to connect, whereas before, it made no sense whatsoever. It seemed like foolishness, seemed like a wives' tale or a myth, right? Or just some other story. So ask yourself today, when the Word of God is read, right? When you hear the Word of God being preached, does it make sense to you? Or does it seem like utter foolishness? And if that is the case, there's a good possibility that the Spirit is not at work in your life and you are to pray for the Spirit to open your eyes so that you can see the truth of Jesus Christ. Because if he doesn't, we never will, right? And if he doesn't, and we never do, we perish. So we're to pray. Again, we're utterly dependent on the Spirit to help us to do this. As a matter of fact, we cannot do anything of any uh, significant value without the Holy Spirit's help. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that we cannot even say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. You cannot even say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit, but there are people who say that Jesus is Lord, and they don't actually believe that he's Lord, and that's scary, right? That's a scary thing. Uh, We have to acknowledge uh, that Jesus is Lord and that he is king, and we can only do that by the Spirit enabling us to do it. We can only really do it. We can say it with our mouths but not believe it in our hearts. You know that on that last day there's some that are going to come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You know that, right? So we can say it. Lord, we can say it, but can we truly say it? That's the question, right? Can we truly say it? No, not without the Holy Spirit. Can we worship Him rightly? No, not without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we do not worship Him for His glory and for His glory alone. Can we serve Him rightly? No, not without a selfish motive, ambition, or intention. Not without the Holy Spirit. All our charitable acts, all of our good deeds, are worthless unless the Holy Spirit is working in our lives to enable us to do them for Jesus Christ. And the only way you're going to do them for Jesus Christ is if the Spirit is at work in you. Okay, So we must utterly depend upon the Holy Spirit. And friends, this means that there are some things in the church today that people are doing that are utterly devoid of the Holy Spirit. That just because somebody says that they are doing something in the name of the Holy Spirit, it does not mean that it is of God we got to get that, right? Just because they say that this is the Spirit of God or they're doing this in the name of the Spirit of God, it does not mean that God's Spirit is at work in it. And especially in a church like ours, where we have a formal set liturgy, we need to be on guard against this. Especially in a church like ours, right? Because it is very easy to come in here week in and week out and just go through the motions and not have our hearts engaged in what's happening, right? Um. It is very easy to just get uh, kind of caught up in doing the things in our service, just saying the prayers, confessing the confessions, uh, you know, or listening to the sermon, but are we really listening? Are we engaged with the sermon while we're hearing it being preached? Are we receiving the sermon as it is preached as words from God to us? Is God speaking to us as the Word of God is being preached right <clears throat> We have to be careful not to just um, go through the motions, right? Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, we need to be careful uh, not to sta- uh, mistake emotionalism in our worship for true spirituality, right? Other end of the spectrum, like you have the rigid, you know, uh, um, you know, liturgy, legalistic types, and it's all about getting things in their right order and, and so forth. And then you have the people that are totally emotional on the other end of the spectrum. And we have to be careful uh, not to mistake that for true spirituality. Uh, Just because we shed a tear during worship or because we feel some goosebumps on the back of our neck or something like this, or we sing really loud, it does not mean that the Spirit is at work in us. Now, God can enable us uh, and he can work these things in us by his Spirit. But if Christ is not truly Lord in our hearts, it's all in vain. Right, Because, again, we're not doing it for the right reason. So, we must constantly pray for the Spirit of God to empower us and enable us to worship and to serve Him rightly. Because, again, we can do nothing without Him. Do you believe that text that we read this morning? Without me you can do nothing? That's what it says. We cannot do anything of any lasting, real, eternal, spiritual significance without the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the restoration of Jesus Christ to the world, and therefore, without the Spirit, we cannot worship and serve him rightly. We see that second point. The Holy Spirit brings the restoration of Jesus Christ to the world, and therefore, without the Spirit, we cannot understand the message rightly. In the latter part of verse 4, right on down through 11. So let's read that again. I'll start in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And uh, following. Okay? Uh, here we see specifically in this instance how the Spirit empowers the, impos- the apostles to fulfill that mission. And that is, He causes them to speak in other tongues. He causes them to speak in other tongues. Now, the word here for tongues means languages. So, what we can deduce from this is that. The Spirit empowered the apostles to speak in other languages without having learned them. Right? He empowered them to speak in another language without having previously learned that language. Again, why would he do this? Well, there are men, we've read, gathered together from every nation under heaven, and they all speak different languages. And so, in order for them to understand what the apostles are saying, God has to get that message into their Language, right? And so the Holy Spirit inspires the, impos- the apostles to speak in the languages of these men that they had not previously learned. <clears throat> but here at Pentecost, uh, these men uh, who are gathered hear them speaking clearly. They say, How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? language. So the gift of the Spirit is twofold in this instance. He enables those who are preaching to miraculously speak in a language that they have not previously learned, and he enables those who are hearing the message that is preached to understand the words that are being preached. That is, he makes it intelligible to them. Another great reversal is taking place here. Uh, we said last week that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the, world, the curse of sin and death is being reversed. And some of you will remember that back in the beginning of your Bibles at the Tower of Babel, God came down and he confused the language of all the people so that they couldn't understand each other and they were dispersed throughout the world. Well, here at Pentecost, God is undoing that curse. God is reversing that curse uh, in the world. People from all nations, all tongues, all walks of life are now going to hear the message of truth preached in a language that they can understand, and that is a gift to all of mankind. It is indeed a great reversal. And that is the next point that I want to make here. Luke is pointing out the fact that this gift is to all mankind. The text tells us that there were devout Jews gathered from every nation under heaven. Let me read that again. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Virgia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So this is men from... All these Jews who are gathered together in this one place are representative of all the nations in the world. This is sort of a representative sampling, as it were. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament... God dealt strictly with the nation of Israel on a covenant on a covenantal basis. That is the 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 crux of the message was concentrated in uh in Israel and the concentration of believers was found in the nation of Israel, although there were exceptions. You have Gentile exceptions here and there throughout the Old Testament. But here at Pentecost we see that the floodgates are burst wide open and God is now extending that salvation into the entire world. Uh, the The message of the gospel is now going to become intelligible for every man and every woman from every nation under heaven and there will be a large harvest of believers brought into the kingdom from every nation. Not just the nation of Israel, but not excluding the nation of Israel either, all nations, And what we see, and what we see here at the end of Peter's sermon is just that. We see the beginning of this great harvest. As I said, in verse 41, if you have your Bibles open, you can see it. It's at the end of Acts chapter 1. We see that there are 3,000 people that convert in one day at the preaching of the apostles here on the day of Pentecost. And guess what they did with that message? Well, if all these Jews gathered together in Jerusalem who speak these different languages get converted and they become Christians, they go back home and they share it with their families and with their communities. And thus begins the dissemination of the gospel throughout the entire world, which we in America have become the beneficiaries of today. We become a part of that, right? Um, we have received the message of the gospel. Now, this gift of tongues that the apostles exercised here in the book of Acts... And the one that we see functioning during the first century is a very specific gift with a very specific purpose for a very specific time. Uh, in the first century prior to the completion of the New Testament, uh you had to have men who were equipped with this gift of speaking in tongues in order to get the message out. It was a necessity because they did not have the Word of God, as we do today, complete. And so in order for God's revelation, having his new revelation that he was giving to the church to get out to these people, you had to have people with this gift so that they could speak it to them in a language that they would be able to understand. But once the canon the, new, the canon of the New Testament came to its completion, once the apostles finished writing it and they died and they fell off the scene, there was no longer a need for this gift, because we have the Word of God, and we just take it and translate it into other Languages. The apostles were used to establish the early church. Uh, Paul tells us that the apostles' teaching is the foundation of the early church, and then everything else grows out of that. Everything else grows out of what the apostles did initially. So today we don't see this gift of tongues functioning in the same way that it did in the first century. Now, again, tongues were used for the express purpose of making people, uh, making it possible for people to understand the message that was being preached in order to that they could be saved. So what are some of the ways that we take the Word of God today and put it into a form that people can understand so that they can be saved? Well, one of the main ones is Bible translation, right? We do this today uh, when we take the Word of God and we uh, learn another language and we translate it into that language and give it to that people so that they can understand it and be saved. Now, the apostles did this in a very extraordinary way. They did it without having learned that language previously, but we have to take the time that it takes to learn the language and then take the Bible and translate it into that language and give it to them. So we do, it, we do in a very ordinary way what the apostles did in an extraordinary way. Um, God has given us the means that are necessary to build the church today. Uh, he's given us his word, he's given us uh, the sacraments, and he has given us the Holy Spirit to empower them. So what we do is we take the word of God and we disseminate it throughout the world through the various means that God has given us. And what are some of the ways that we do this? We talked a little bit about it this morning in Bible study. Anytime you take the Word of God and you put it out there on social media and share it, right, other people are getting the message, the Word of God, in a way that they can understand it, right? Or when we take the Word of God and we... Make a podcast where we where we talk about it there on the podcast, or we write an article, or we write a book, or we put together a gospel track so we can hand out to somebody and they can read the gospel message in a way that they can understand it and be saved. Or even when we just take the message and break it down in a way that our hearers can understand the things that are being said to us. We break it down for the people that we're talking to so that they can hear it and be saved. And when we do that, we are doing in a very ordinary way what the apostles did extraordinarily. But nevertheless, God takes these very ordinary things that we do, and he uses them to do extraordinary things in the world. You see? So, uh, in order uh, for us to understand the message being preached, we must have the Holy Spirit. Finally, we see the, uh, the last point there, number three, the Holy Spirit brings the restoration of Jesus Christ to the world, and therefore without the without the spirit we cannot respond to the things of god rightly we see that in verses 12 and 13 and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean but others mocking said they are filled with new wine others mocking said that they were filled with they are filled with new wine so here we see that there are two different responses to this uh, miraculous event some people are amazed and perplexed and others mock Some are amazed and perplexed, others mock. Now, first we have those who are amazed. They are not hostile to the message or the miracle, but they are amazed and confused all at the same time, (laughs) Uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, They just were going to need some further explanation for the things that they were hearing and seeing, which they're going to get from Peter here in in just a moment. Well, in following, we're not going to talk about it today, but in Peter's message to follow, there's going to be more explanation uh, given. But the others are hostile to the message and the miracle. They make fun of it. Um, They say that the apostles must be drunk. (laughs) Now, why would they think that they were drunk? Well, if if you had men carrying on in front of you in a language that you didn't understand, it would all sound like a bunch of babble to you. And this thing just kind of happens miraculously. So they... They say they must be drunk, and they say they're drunk with new wine, that is, strong wine. But this is what always happens when an unbeliever sees a work of God, or when the truth of God comes to bear on an unbeliever. They scoff at it. They reject it, and they make fun of it, right? Is this not what the case is? Uh, The apostles have been given a message to preach and a miraculous sign to perform along with it to confirm the message that they preached. It was obvious to everybody who was standing there that a work of God uh, was being done, God made it possible for everybody who was there to understand the message that was being preached. God was now extending this salvation to the entire world, but the unbelievers scoff at it. They reject it, and they mock at it, and in so doing, they show that they are still under the condemnation of God. And friends, it is no different in the day in which we are living today when the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being preached in our day and God is bearing witness to it uh, by the power of his Holy Spirit, those who are perishing, they scoff at it. They mock it and they will mock you. And we ought not to be surprised when this happens because this is the way that it always is, right? They mocked uh, the message, they mocked the apostles then, and it is the same today. They made fun of them, at least, or they misconstrue it. People who are perishing hate the truth. People who are walking uh, in darkness hate the light because it exposes their sin, right? And so they're opposed to it. They reject it. They mock at it. Uh, they mock it, and they mock you. They will say that you Christians are just a bunch of holy rollers and hypocrites, right? You'll hear you'll hear things like that. You're just a hypocrite. You think you've got it all all together, right? Uh, you're always looking down your nose at everybody else, but uh, you're just a hater, <laughs> right? You're just a you're just a bigot. Right? You'll, you'll hear these sorts of things. And that, friends, is an indication that we're preaching the true gospel. If you're preaching the true gospel. It might, may just be that you need to fix your attitude or something. Uh, but it is a good indicator if you're preaching the true gospel, uh, that people are gonna mock you and they're gonna mock the message. That's what, that's what they do. That's what they've always done. Uh, you'll, you'll hear things like, all you ever want to do is talk about sin. What are you trying to make me feel bad or something? <laughs> are you trying to make me depressed? Right? And you'll notice that every week in our service we have a confession of sin. And for some people that is offensive. Right? But if God, if you are a Christian or if God is in the process of saving you, you will know that God is holy and that you are a sinful person and therefore you'll have no problems confessing your sins before Him.